episode 33 here on the end credits podcast thank you so much for clicking on this episode and listening to us today we are talking about midnight in paris one of the more recognizable films in woody allen's filmography my name is nathan pig i'm joined once again by frequent friend of the show phoenix cloud and phoenix what's up man what's going on buddy uh you know what i dreamt of last night the rhinoceros <laughs> so i'm very happy to be here <laughs> oh boy well we got a lot to say about midnight in paris um first phoenix when when you were watching this mm-hmm. you thought to yourself why the hell are we doing this on the podcast <laughs> and uh can you explain a little further why you may have thought that i i think for me it like I went into this movie so blind, okay? Like I, I like legit didn't even know this was Woody Allen. Like that's how blind I went into this. I didn't read the synopsis. I didn't know who was in it. I, I basically was like Midnight in Paris. Okay, cool. Like the only thing I've ever seen about this movie is the, the poster and the guy walking in uh, with a, like a Monet inspired background. I was like, okay, we'll we'll see how this goes. But for me, like, I think by the time I got like midway through, I was just like, you know, n- nothing against the, this particular film. But like based on the last few films that we've done, it, it feels like a little bit of a step down, at least in terms of storytelling. So I was like, this is a weird choice, but I- I'm I'm glad we're, we're talking about it. You can answer that question for me. <laughs> Well, it's definitely different in terms of cultural relevance, too. You look at the yeah. last couple that we did. Maybe AI doesn't have that cultural relevance, but it's still a Spielberg movie. Yeah. But you look at uh, American Psycho, Fences, Moonlight, Raging Bull. Yeah, I mean, certainly certainly this isn't on the pedestal that those ones are, but we're also trying to diversify across genres, across directors, across what specifically the story is about. So. Midnight in Paris, this is clearly your first time with this movie since you went in so blind. This is my, I'm going to call it first and a half time. And what I mean by that is I was uh, so, so distracted watching it the first time that I don't even think I gave it a fair shake. But almost everything within the first 30 minutes, I remembered substantially. But mm-hmm. after that, um, it it was pretty much pretty much a new watch for me so i'll call it one and a half woody allen is randomly a director that i've watched a ton of films of this year i have no idea why um the irrational man cafe society vicky christina barcelona annie hall and now this i think this is five movies i've watched of his this year just super random and it's only april i don't know why um (laughs) terrible terrible human being woody allen is and we will uh potentially or potentially not talk about that later but he's a terrible human being we are just going to focus specifically on the films and separate the art from the artist Mm -hmm. i don't know i think i think he makes a lot of easy to digest movies and while we're going to talk about the storytelling here maybe some issues we have certainly a lot of things we appreciate about it i think his movies are always super easy to digest and normally they are at least a good time romantically comedically i know you love vicky christina barcelona Mm -hmm. so i'm a big fan of annie hall so 
certainly he's got some some really legitimate works in there that resonate with us. As far as Midnight in Paris goes, Phoenix, you knew nothing about it coming in. What what were your thoughts overall, just kind of high level before we dive into specifics? Uh I would say uh the the what the main takeaway that I have from this is like and it's kind of a cheat, okay? You do anything involving friends and you're going to have my love. <laughs> like, like France is just one of those places, one of those cultures that I'm naturally drawn to. Uh, so yeah, just having that, it was, it was an easy movie to settle in. And I kind of get it if this movie's like a, uh, a comfort film for anybody uh yeah because i, I can, can totally, totally see that. yeah i can totally yeah. see that so like for me it was a it was a really good comfort film and i like i was really taken by that um but yeah you're you're right his his stories are typically very simple um but that's not a bad thing right because you're telling a story about romance and and in this one you're talking about romance and literature and you know setting it in the french society this is is also what made me fall in love with the french dispatch by wes anderson um i like that combination right give me french give me romance give me literature i'm I'm all for it it's the love story in this that i'm like okay Uh, (laughs) and some of the dialogue that i'm also kind of like not his strongest. Uh so yeah, but overall I I could I'm I'm comforted by this film simply because of the aesthetics that it, it uh shows. So that that's where I'm at with it. I think that's easily the biggest thing that people love about Midnight in Paris is the aesthetics and mm-hmm the cinematography and the uh, shot locations, less production design, certainly some when they're inside of buildings, but a lot of the outside of course is real. Um, I mean, geez, the movie starts with like two and a half minutes of just shots of Paris. And it's like, okay, can, can we start this movie? Like (laughs) I even wondered if I had pulled up the right stream, if I had rented the right movie, I was like, did I just, did I mess this up? That's three dollars down the drain. Um, no, but I, I see what you're saying, especially from the comfort side of things. I wouldn't be shocked if there were a lot of people who really just adore this movie for the aesthetics, for the feel, for the dreamlike atmosphere, and for the people, especially of course, this movie's got a global reach, but for the people here in the United States who really long for this type of atmosphere, long for this to be almost their journey and their experience. For me, there are a lot of things I appreciated about this movie. We'll certainly get into them. But when it concluded, it left me with an overall resounding question of, so what was the point? Yeah. What was the purpose of this? And not in an angry ask, not in a, like, I just wasted 90 minutes. No, no, no. Just kind of like, what is this movie trying to say? Mm-hmm. And it different from, you know, last episode, we talked about American Psycho, which definitely is a Google American Psycho ending explained. 
across 75% of the viewers. <laughs> Midnight in Paris is just kind of, it wraps up and you leave yourself asking, well, I, I don't really see what the overall point was here. Now, here for you and I who love film as much as we do, we like to analyze and we love to physically go deeper. And hopefully for you listening, you like to do that as well. Now, that doesn't mean we can't watch the Mario movie or we can't watch mm -hmm. Toy Story and not just flat out enjoy it. We don't need to analyze every single piece of media we ever see. But this is an Oscar-nominated movie. This is a award-winning screenplay. This isn't in the same category as the Mario movie or Despicable Me. And this is something that does raise the question of analyzing deeper on its overall themes and messages. And for me, I left more pondering and still pondering what exactly was the purpose of this. And hopefully that's what a lot of our big discussion here is today. And maybe you listening here says, well, there's not really a purpose. There's not really a message. Sure. There's some underlying themes that aren't maybe supposed to be that loud, mm -hmm. but it is more of just a love letter to Paris. If that's the case, fine. But that's so strange compared to what Woody Allen's normal work is. And it's strange that the Academy would recognize something that's more or less just a love letter to Paris with beautiful cinematography that's lacking an overall point and an overall arching message. Hmm. Oh, excuse me. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, that there it was is. love it. Yeah. That was also my takeaway was like, um, is that it? <laughs> like, I was like, not that the story is necessarily bad or anything, but it is sort of a weird uh, story. Like, when you when you really look at it, you're like, oh, it not weird, thin. That's the word I'm looking for. It's a it's a thin story. Um, Woody Allen is an incredibly talented writer. Um, yes, and and he works very very quickly. Uh, it's one of one of his skills, and so this feels like a movie that he, you know, wrote very quickly and and got, you know, production on very quickly. Uh, it's it's not that it's bad. It's just like it's a very thinly veiled story. So basically, you have this couple who are visiting Paris before their. Uh, marriage and he's fallen in love with Paris and his wife or sorry his fiance isn't as taken by the romanticism of 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 Patty and you know and he's working on a novel and he doesn't believe himself to be that good of a writer and all of a sudden he gets transported to a world where he meets all of his uh literary heroes uh, you get not just literary, but also like, uh, you know, art artists. So, you know, you get uh, Hemingway, you get uh, Salvador Dali, you get Pablo Picasso, like all of these guys, all these people hanging out around the same time. Um, and that in itself, I think, is really interesting. That's a really cool journey to for anybody to go on, especially, you know, that's going to connect with me as a writer. Um 
you know, the, the idea of getting to meet your literary heroes, that, that sounds amazing. But, you know, in, in the midst of this, his, his relationship begins to fall apart, or he at least notices that him and his, his fiance are incompatible. And yeah, he just, he, he wants to stay in this world. And it's, it's sort of, uh, I guess what I would say is the message is not romanticizing the past. I guess that's the message of this movie is sometimes, you know, you want to live in your present time for good and for bad, but you know, he, he's, he's a fan of Paris in the twenties. And then as he's there, I think, what does he go to 1890 or something? Yep. 1890. Yeah. And so like, even, you know, and the people there are like, no, you know, this is, this is the golden age. And they're like, no, the, the age before this. And, you know, he's like, no, it's coming up the golden age. So like, it's interesting that depend on, on who you ask, like, everyone's perception of what is great about a certain time period is different and you know yeah so i that's the one message i think that this movie makes is is not to romanticize a certain time period um which is great i just feel like it's very thinly uh done like i think even like owen wilson as the main character he literally says the theme out loud <laughs> you know what i'm saying so so, so you, you touched on several things that i want to talk about and i think first and foremost yes probably the overarching theme of this movie is to everyone is not happy for the most part where they are in their life Ooh. that's the big kind of thing you notice with almost every single one of these characters it is not just with gill which is the very obvious example where he wants to go back and live in paris in the past and definitely romanticizes the past that's a big word that we're going to be using quite a bit but you also look at um inez Inez is not happy with her life from the front end. She wants to go partying. She wants to hang out with Paul. She even admits to sleeping with Paul. You look at Adriana from the past. She doesn't want to live in that time period. She longs for the 1920s. The gentleman that they meet in the 1890s, they want to go back to the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Let's circle back to Inez's father. Inez's father, while he doesn't just outright say he wants to go to another time period, Almost every single time we see him, he's either talking about politics or he's complaining about something. Mm -hmm. So that definitely shows he's not happy with his life. How about the character of Paul? You know, he's either married or engaged and he still goes ahead and sleeps with Inez. Mm -hmm. So it's almost every character outside of um, Dolly and Picasso and Hemingway outside of the real life characters who are um in this movie that you know that owen milson meets right the the real life characters mm -hmm. except for adriana they never really outright say it but everyone else does so i think the overarching theme is you know no one's really happy in their point in life and i think the movie's trying to come across and say that look be grateful for what you have. Mm -hmm. And even when you're not grateful for what you have, 
you need to look elsewhere. Maybe that's what the ending is. What we'll talk about the ending too. Maybe that's what it's trying to say, but you nailed it with the, the verbiage of thin. I think Ooh. it's very thin. I think all the ideas are there. I think the pieces are there, but they don't quite fit or they're just not examined enough. Like they started building the staircase but there's only three steps out of the mm. 10 necessary steps. Right. It's like, I see what you are going towards, but we could have used another 15 minutes. We could have used more in-depth discovery on why things are the way that they are and really hammering home some of these thematic elements, especially with our main character, Gil. Um, it's just so thin and so surface level and so shallow. These themes are there. We think we see them. But overall, it's so surface level that it begs the question of what what was the point of this whole movie? I think uh, the big thing, I think the big thing for me, Phoenix, one of the first episodes we did together on this podcast um, was Soul, mm-hmm. Pixar Soul. And that was a phenomenal episode. Go back and listen to that if, if you'd like. But we got very, um, very deep on that episode because Soul obviously tackles a lot of themes around life worth living and uh, people not being happy in their current situation, being grateful. And there's that quote in it about the fish in the ocean where, you know, mm-hmm. an older, a younger fish swims up to an older fish, says, I'm trying to find this thing they call the ocean. And the older fish says, that's what you're in right now. And he said, the younger fish says, no, this is water. What I want is the ocean, which of course is in relevance to um, not appreciating where you are right now. Right. And right. always, always, always searching for something better, greater in your mind when you need to look at what's right in front of you. In many ways, that's what Gil is. He's longing for the 1920s. And once he experiences it, that's all he can think about. Meanwhile, he's got this beautiful wife, which that's his words. Rachel McAdams mm-hmm. certainly is beautiful, but mm-hmm. he at least recognizes it. That's important. He's in the city that he loves, but he can never really take it all in because he's constantly thinking about what it would be like in the past. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, we've gone on this five-minute tirade about, mm-hmm. yeah, it's about not appreciating the now. And maybe going back in time uh, opened his eyes to the fact that he needs to remove some of the things in his life that he's not happy with. But it was so thin. It was one slice of meat on the sandwich, mm. not six. Mm. And it could have been layered on so much better. Yeah. I, yeah. I think we hammered that point uh, specifically is. Yeah. And it's. And by no means am I saying that that makes it entirely bad, because I don't think this movie is bad at all. Um, I really enjoyed it, actually, uh, quite a bit. Uh, but it is, yeah, it's it's incredibly thin. Um, and and that's okay. My even in this thin uh, f- film, though, there are genuine, genuinely great, great moments. Um, I wish there were more of them. Uh, but yeah, there's some genuinely great moments, particularly, uh, one of his first discussions with Hemingway, uh, you know, Hemingway, you know, basically, again, this goes into the thinness of this, of the script, but 
Hemingway points out that you're not really in love because love is a is a respite from death. And he's like, and he asks him if, if he fears death. And he says all the time. And he's like, that means like, you know, when you're making love, you have and you completely lost in that passion. You fear nothing. You fear no death. And it's only when, you know, love is finished that 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 fear returns and you must make love again. You know, <laughs> it's such a great, great conversation and a great line. Um uh it's obviously pointing to the fact that his relationship isn't isn't strong um which sucks obviously cuz it, it's it's so blatantly said but it's done in a very very artistic way and i do like the way uh the way hemingway uh spells it out and this cast is amazing like this is a ridiculously star-studded cast you have Owen Wilson and Rachel McAdams leading it, but then you also have Michael Sheen, um, Marion Cotillard, Leah Saito. Uh, eventually, uh, we get um, Tom Hiddleston is in here. So is uh, Corey Stoll, who plays Hemingway. Uh, so is Kathy, Kathy, Kathy Bates. Bates. Yep, Adrian Brody. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's uh insane you know it's a, it's an crazy it's a crazy list of characters um but yeah and i think they're all doing an amazing job it's just i wish they had more to work with <laughs> i think uh while we're talking about characters right i think Corey stall is is an incredibly amazing. underrated actor. oh really underrated and especially yeah. at the time of us recording this general audiences are really only going to know him from the MCU mm-hmm. from Ant-Man and then going on to play Modoc who he's probably going to get meme for the rest of his life <laughs> but this is this is a man and I kid you not this is a man who could win best actor at oh some totally point. given totally. the right role given the right role he could absolutely feast in some academy award recognized um, positions. I just mm. I think he's so underrated, and maybe to a lesser degree, maybe not an Academy Award winner, but I think Allison Pill is really talented Absolutely. as well. And I I think we don't talk about her enough, right? She's not in a whole lot of recognizable roles. People probably know her best from Scott Pilgrim, um, but she is very talented, and she only had limited screen time in this movie, mm-hmm. but she's remarkable and. I don't know if I could ever see her going on to win any Oscars, but like, let's at least give her the shot. I mean, she's super talented, but Corey Stoll, I think he's fantastic. I've seen him in um, Cafe Society as well, which is another Woody Allen project. And he plays like this mobster and mm-hmm. he does it so well. I, I'm just a big fan of his. And you want to talk about, underrated actors we'll probably do an underrated actors pod at some point um he's got to be near the top of that list uh i would agree uh like you mentioned uh most people know him from the mcu that's that's exactly where i knew him from um and it was it was like a scene or two when in hemingway and i go i know that guy <laughs> and i was like oh my god that's Corey Stoll. i was like wow yeah um, I think for him, the, the the biggest issue is that he mostly does television. Like, yeah, he's big so, in 
big in House yeah. of Cards. Yeah, big. He was in House of Cards. He's in Billions. He was in uh, Law and Order. Uh, so I think that's really the only issue is that like he's mainly done television. Um, he needs a, he needs a few more. Well, you're telling movies. me right, like you're telling me that he couldn't slide into that Jesse Plemons Power of the Dog role oh, ap- easily. He Easily. totally could have. Yeah. You're telling me that I mean that's the one that that stands out right away to me. Um but yeah, g- give him a dramatic piece. Yeah. Like and I think he could totally totally crush it. Yeah. You're telling me he couldn't have played um Paul Dano's role in The Fablemans? I think he could have. Like give him mm-hmm. one of these meaty dramatic roles and I promise you he will uh get recognized for it. Regardless Absolutely. What did you think of this whole I know the whole premise of this movie is going back in time and him meeting all of his idols. Mm-hmm. We've already talked about how successful this movie is with its messaging. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like those characters specifically helped advance the plot at all and what their overall significance to the greater picture is? Because yes, he goes and he meets F. Scott Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. but really, and he meets Hemingway, but really, like, I guess my big thing is he meets Kathy Bates' character of uh, Gertrude, Gertrude Stein. Stein. Yeah, he meets Gertrude Stein, who revises his book, and Hemingway revises his book, but it doesn't ultimately go anywhere. Like, we don't see him, the movie ends before we ever see him take these steps to publish his book, and we we are going to talk about the ending. I keep saying that, but we are. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, the only relevance that these characters really provide outside of Adriana, outside of Adriana. So the Fitzgeralds, Stein, Hemingway, the only real significance these characters provide is when Hemingway reads his book and says th- something along the lines of like, oh, the man's in love with someone else and super obvious, something mm-hmm. like that. And that directly leads to him calling out Inez, who then reveals she's sleeping with someone else, and that leads to their breakup. Definitely a pivotal part in the story, but you look at encompassing this entire movie in 10 months. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, what was Midnight in Paris about? What's like some of the biggest things you remember? You're going to be like, oh yeah, you go back in time and you meet all these real life characters who had a tremendous impact on society and literature and history. Yeah. Mm. What, what role did they provide in the movie? Uh, not, not really. It was kind of like cameo fest in a way. Yeah. Am, I, am I wrong to think that? Like, no, what that's... value does, what value does F Scott Fitzgerald have in this movie? That, that is it. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a heavy cameo fest because there's a moment he meets T.S. Eliot and and that's it. He just says hi, you're T.S. Eliot, and they get on, they get in the car and they drive off, and we never see that character again. <laughs> like to me, I think uh, what I what I wanted. This is more what I wanted was that his interactions in the past with these people would give him a greater uh, understanding of history exactly yeah and and that would have played more of a role in in who he was in the present um we don't get that to me the like i wouldn't call it the weakest but it's certainly not the strongest 
uh, aspect of this movie is the love story um, to me, you know, between Inez and Adriana, like it, neither one of them made any sense, right? His relationship with Inez, it was like, you could tell that this is not a strong relationship. And then when he meets Adriana, it's like, what are you going to fall in love with someone who died 500 years ago? You know what I'm saying? It's like, like, uh, maybe not, you know what I'm saying? So I was like, this, this feels weird, uh, for so much time to be spent on, on either of these, well, specifically on Adriana, uh, I think her role was just to make him realize that he wasn't in love with Inez, but I think there's a lot of time spent on that. Um, we've and- we've talked so much, we've talked so much about themes and resonating with resonating, excuse me, resonating themes and what this movie could have done better. Think about any movie, any movie where there is a character who goes either back in the past mm-hmm. or goes to another country, goes to another place, meets someone for the first time. Mm-hmm. Fictitious, historically accurate, doesn't matter. And that character changes the main character's perspective. So by the end of the movie, the main character is able to make a judgment call because they met someone new who changed their perspective. There are hundreds of movies like this. Mm -hmm. Hundreds. They could have done this here. And they do a little bit. They do a a little little bit. bit. But it would have been so much stronger if Gil goes back to Paris in the 1920s. He meets Gertrude Stein, who gives him all this advice about his literature. And he is able to incorporate that into becoming a successful writer. He meets Ernest Hemingway, who teaches him all about life and love and just these generic themes about what it is like to be human. And that makes him realize that his um, relationship with Inez is not as strong as it needs to be. And maybe that's worth leaving. Mm -hmm. He meets F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he meets the Fitzgeralds and sees that the wife is not happy and wants to potentially harm herself. And that leads to decisions in his life and examining his own relationship. Mm. He sits down with Dolly for like a two minute scene of Adrian Brody. All of these things could have culminated to a 10 minute ending around I have met these he doesn't have to say this but we know this as an audience I have met these historical figures they have shaped and molded this sculpture of my thinking and because I've met them this is now how I feel about my relationship about what I want to do with my career and about my life they do that right but it is so remarkably surface level. Mm-hmm. They plant those seeds a centimeter deep instead mm-hmm. of how deep they need to plant those seeds. Yeah. And I think it, it's a big missed opportunity. Yeah. It felt very much like, uh, you know, now that we know, you know, this is the, now that we know all of this stuff, let's do this. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't, 
it it wasn't infused together. The two storylines weren't infused together as well as they could have been. Like the 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 lessons learned from the past, the the historical meetings of, of these people, and how it translates to his life. Those things weren't completely connected. Uh, so that that sucks. That's the only thing that I think I think that is the weakest part of this movie is that those two things suck. That, that those two things weren't brought together as well. Yeah, uh, and it just it just to put a to bow to put a bow on this point, right? It just completely wraps up that these historical characters who are monumental figures and were a big deal to be represented in this movie provide little to no value to the overall story outside of oh my god it's pablo picasso right what what significance do any of these characters play they really don't again like when we said it's it's there a little bit like that scene where we see pablo has painted a, a portrait of adriana and gertrude stein is criticizing it because it's not exactly the right uh you know, viewpoint. Uh, when they go, when you know, back in in the present time, when they go to the museum, and he sees that portrait, <clears throat> you know, and he like, and you got uh, Paul, you know, being you know a pedantic intellectual, you know, talking about talking about it, and he's like, actually, Paul, and, you know, because he has that information now. Like, so to me, I was like. That like I thought we would get more of that, right? Like so, like he meets the Fitzgeralds and and you know he learns about them and then he gets to apply that into his his real life. Um, you know he meets T. S. Eliot, he meets you know Gertrude Stein. He gets to to involve himself more in this history and it and it infuses his life. Um, but yeah, like in terms of what the movie could have done, you know, who's to say it might have turned out a totally different way. Um, but I think based off of what it does do, it still has genuine moments of levity, of charm, of uh of whimsy, and it's a beautifully realized I won't say that. It's a beautiful looking film, <laughs> definitely. Um it just, it, it's just kind of, yeah, it's just there. Like, you know, and it's baffling to me because we, we, you told me that this was a best picture nominee. I don't know, 2012 or 2011, I guess, was a weird year. I don't, I don't know what happened in 2011. I don't know what came out, Um, but, you know. Maybe this was one of the top, you know, nine best films of that year, but it also feels like it was just saying, hey, Woody Allen is is one of the best. So we'll just give Woody Allen uh, some some appreciation here because that that's really what, what it came out of it. I think it was only nominated for three, maybe four. Oh, yeah. Four awards where it was a uh, it was picture. It was director, screenplay and production design or something like that or art art direction we will um we'll talk more about that there's a couple more story points i want to bring up is that first and foremost i would have loved not a full explanation but some form of an explanation 
of how he was able to physically go through the past. It's also a little frustrating. Like why him? Right. Why every night? Mm -hmm. What happens? He tries to bring Inez to, you know, experience this with him, but it wasn't midnight yet. So Mm -hmm. once he realized that was the cadence and that was the entry point, why didn't he try it again? Was he just trying to be selfish? Was that maybe because, at that point, he had fallen in love with Adriana and didn't mm-hmm. want those two to meet. But mm-hmm. he does say afterwards, you'd love her. I don't want you to meet her. You'd love her. So, like, I, again, conflicting areas there. <laughs> I it, For as much as he was like, oh, no, Inez, I spent the night with Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And she's like, you're crazy. He could have taken her there. Maybe that's against the rules. Maybe he's the only one that can go. Clearly, that's not the case because we saw the private de- detective yeah, yeah. go back and pass the will. So, like, it it's it leaves a gap. Again, mm-hmm. we are we are people that want to <laughs> analyze movies that want to understand movies. I don't think I'm poking holes, and this is a stretch here. Like, this is a legitimate question. Like, why him? Why does he get to do this? Does this car come around? every night at midnight and just picks up whoever they want. Mm-hmm. What, what happened with this private investigator? We saw that scene. This is mostly <laughs> supposed to be a comedy, but it's like the story still matters. How did that guy get to go even further back in time? Mm-hmm. What is it like? So it's clear that anyone can make this entry point. I, I just think this was a gap where Woody Allen, the sole writer on this movie, um, just didn't care to fulfill. Well, I mean, I think, I think for this movie, it's it's sort of like I forget what the term is in, in writing, but it's like it's it's like a magical void or something, right? So like you you can put a, a magical void in a realistic story, right? And and it it doesn't need explanation, it's just there, right? It's just one of those things that's there. So in in Paris, I don't know if it's you know just the 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 Paris of it all, <laughs> but there's this magical void there where at midnight you get to travel to the past, and I think it is just because maybe it wasn't just because him, maybe it was always there, but you know he got that he got that invitation to the void. Um, yeah, and and I understand too. Like, I'm this isn't me saying it's not realistic. Like, yeah. I, I completely understand this movie is fictitious and science right. fiction-y, but this does this story does demand an answer for why this is able to happen, why him, why he didn't bring Inez to see it. Like, clearly, there needed to be answers for that. And I think it's mostly just, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it was selfish. It was a selfish reason. This is something that was open to you you got to experience it and you want to you want to keep that for yourself which i i get especially because he's a writer um and he's getting so much inform not just information but inspiration uh from this these these encounters um you know yeah it's it, it's it's his you know he feels a little bit possessive of it um which i can understand and then you know the the falling in love with Adriana also you know doesn't help. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of mystery surrounding what 
what genuinely takes place here, but I don't think that's the the crux of the film. Is not the mystery or or how you know this is able to happen. It's it's what he takes away from it, and what he takes away from it. I think also it's kind of muddled because it's like so much of the theme is you know living in your time and appreciating your present, and then you know he kind of still falls for someone who's a, a fan of that time period, a fan of, you know, you know, they're both Cole Porter lovers and, and, and stuff like that. So it's like, appreciate your time, but also, I guess, appreciate the past as well. I don't know. Like, feels kind of muddled. Um, I just don't think it was executed well. Okay, we've talked a lot about some of our issues with the film. Phoenix, what do you really love about this film any plot points i know we talk about the the choreography or excuse me the cinematography and the production what just in general do you love about this movie i like the feel of it like you know like i said this is a comfort film like for me i wouldn't watch this for the story i really wouldn't watch this again for the dialogue or anything like that I would watch it for this production itself. Um, you know, that opening scene where it's like three minutes of just shots of Paris. Ah, like I thought it would be, I thought it would annoy me. I I was so enamored by that. Um, you know, and throughout, you know, seeing Paris back in back in time, seeing Paris in the present. Uh, there is some some genuinely good humor in this movie. It's not like laugh out loud humor, but like you know, it's some it's some cute laughs in there. Um, the score, oh my god, I totally passed over that. The score is crazy good, like crazy crazy good, and and definitely puts you in the in the Paris setting. So I think for me, that's really what I what I like about it is that I feel a part of this, not particularly of this story, but definitely a part of this time period that the story takes place in. So it's a very immersive film. And and I and I like that about it. Yeah, and and this is a very simplistic answer, but the cast, like seeing so many recognizable faces is really cool. I'm also a big time uh I'm always so fascinated to see when real life figures get portrayed in mm-hmm. in media and who is playing them. Mm-hmm. Now I don't I'm not as familiar with Picasso and Gertrude Stein and Hemingway, but I'm always so fascinated to see who has decided to play real life figures. So no matter what it is, not just this movie. And I think they nailed it with most of these castings here. So I think that's pretty fascinating to see all these A-listers just playing these real-life roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stuff will continue to fascinate me. And the other big thing that I really appreciate about this movie, and I got to be careful how I say this because I just also gave a lot of area for improvement. But I do like the ending. I do like the ending. I like okay. that they ended it there. That doesn't mean that there's not room for improvement because there is. But the true true ending scene i liked i think they should have done more as we've already talked about i'm not going to beat a dead horse but i think they should have done more with how these characters in the past influenced his life Mm 
-hmm. They did that a little bit, but it was not nearly enough. But that true, true ending scene, he had just broken up with Inez. He's walking the streets. He sees the character played by Leia Sadu and who they have always had a little bit of not romantic tension, certainly, but they were always super friendly to each other. And she's like, oh, yeah, I love walking in the rain. Obviously, one of the big time points that Gil and Inez did not agree on. And there's, Mm. you know, symbolic philosophy there that they didn't agree. And, oh, yeah, she loved to do it. And it ends with that open book ending that, you know, you it's up to your own imagination with what happens next. I did like that. It ends on kind of a higher note. And I appreciated that. Could have done more in the couple scenes before it. Right. But that scene alone and how they decide to cap it off, I think was great. Yeah. I, I, I would agree. Um, I think it was styled really, really well. Um, I think how we got to that point, again, like we said a few times here, was just pretty thin. It was very thinly veiled. Um, I, I I hate to say this, but I do kind of feel like Owen Wilson was uh, miscast. Um, I, I like this cast. I think he does a pretty solid job, as solid job as he could do. Um, I would have liked to see someone else in this role. Like for me, it just would have come across a little bit. I I don't know, maybe, maybe stronger. I, I'm not exactly sure who I would have put in this place. Um, but I feel like he plays this character just a little bit too doe eyed and, and, you know, coming from comedy, you can tell like he's still like fresh in his com- comedic chops the the romanticism the drama of it i don't think he nails quite as strongly as i would expect someone else to do in this role um but he was okay i just feel like there was a there was a stronger version of this character out there um than i think he he gives who who would you like to see play this uh i'm not sure because i mean this was 2011 i'm not sure who was uh you know, around that age, around that type at the time. Um, I have no names off the top of my head. I could throw one out there that would have been kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, I would have liked to see Toby Maguire in this role. I think he might have been brought something interesting to it. That that might have been an interesting uh, way to go. I think um, um, this one, for me, might be a little little obvious because midnight in Paris does have a lot of resembling qualities. Obviously they're not the same, but Mm. they've got a lot of aesthetic resembling qualities to before sunset. But I think Ethan Hawke probably would have been a a natural shoe in for this as well. I think Ethan Hawke is a stronger dramatic actor than Owen Wilson. Mm -hmm. I don't feel the same way that you do around a miscast. I think Owen Wilson was, was good. Could it have been better? Yeah, it could have been better. It, it but probably I think, falls on, on more on the script than it does on him. Yeah. If we're being yeah, yeah. I think Owen Wilson's a very talented actor too. Like he's right. he's very talented. But this probably could have been there's room for improvement, right? Yeah. Um Owen Wilson was pretty much always the lead for this. You know, we talked a lot about in the past. We always talk about when we do reviews like this. Oh, this person was in discussion to get cast. Mm-hmm. Nope. 
not here. It was it was pretty much him from the get go. Um, they said, quote, I thought Owen would be charming and funny, but my fear was that he was not so Eastern at all in this persona, said Woody Allen. Um, but he did describe him as a natural actor. So that's at least part of it. And that's good. All right, let's get into some of the Oscar conversation here. All right, so this was nominated for four Oscars. Um, Best Picture, Best Director, Original Screenplay, and Art Design, which is basically Mm -hmm. production design. Right. So, 2011, it won only one of these Oscars. It won Original Screenplay. So let's go ahead and see... Now, let's cap off by saying that 2011 was one of the weaker years of yeah. the 10s to 20. It was may have been the weakest of them all. I mean, this there are Yikes. some good movies in here. Don't get me wrong. There's some good movies in this lineup. There's some good movies in 2011 for the 2012 Oscars, but this was a pretty weak year. So yeah. best original screenplay, you had The Artist, Bridesmaids, Margin Call, Midnight in Paris, and a separation. Now, first of all, I just want to say Bridesmaids and Margin Call, both good movies. Those would never, ever <laughs> sniff original screenplays in today's Oscars. It's just movies like that just don't get recognized mm-hmm. in screenplay categories. You could say, oh, uh, look at everything everywhere being a trendsetter, but everything everywhere is so remarkably creative mm-hmm. and also has so much heart behind it. Margin Call and Bridesmaids are both very good at what they're trying to accomplish. I'm stunned <laughs> this was in here for original screenplay. Yikes. So the fact that Midnight in Paris won. Yeah, um, kind of fits. <laughs> I'm not shocked here. Nah. I've heard and- great things about A Separation, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, that's a weird one, especially with the artist in there as well, considering the artist is a silent film. Uh, yeah, it's weird that that's in screenplay, <laughs> but okay. Um, yeah, I look, I, I was not paying attention to the Oscars around this time. Uh, so, but wow, uh, I guess congratulations for Bridesmaids. That's that's such a weird nomination. <laughs> Uh, looking back on that but uh yeah i think in this lineup it's it's almost a guarantee that that woody allen would win that um yeah that's just such a a weird lineup i know that bridesmaids has like a lot more cultural relevance than what i'm about to say but that would be like at this year's oscars that would have been like unbearable way to massive talent (laughs) getting original screenplay this is one of the big seven and what like what what are we doing here? This is crazy. <laughs> I I this was a this might have been one of the worst collections <laughs> of nominees that I've ever seen. Like this rivals 2020. As far as some <laughs> of the worst. Anyway, let's move on. Uh best director, the artist, the um the, Michael has a van sis. I'm so sorry. I, I <laughs> definitely butchered that. The director of the artist, I'm so sorry to Michael. Alexander Payne for The Descendants, Marty Scorsese for Hugo, Woody Allen for Midnight in Paris, and Terrence Malick for The Tree of Life. Now, again, I think this is pretty weak. Um, 
collection of films just in general i know there are a lot of tree of life lovers out there i'm not one of them i think the artist is one of the weakest best picture winners maybe of all time um i love the descendants i think the descendants is a tremendous movie yeah. it's very simplistic especially when you look at recent best director winners mm. with everything everywhere and, and power of the dog and nomad land but like this is a remarkably simplistic movie by Alexander Payne, but that would have been my choice. But um, Midnight in Paris was nominated, and I believe the artist won. Let me look. Mm-hmm. Did it win the artist? In director? Yeah. I, mm, yes, I believe so. Because it took... Yeah, it took yeah, the more, artist won. Yeah, yeah, it took more awards than anybody. Michael could. H., <laughs> Michael right. H, best director winner. Michael H. <laughs> um, you know, like in school when the teacher always has a hard last name to pronounce and mm-hmm. you're teaching a bunch of like fifth graders. So he's like, just call me Mr. H. Mm-hmm. That's fine. That's that's what we're going to do. Um, As an ambitious, by the way. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I don't know. Another, another weak lineup. I, does this movie, Midnight in Paris, scream best director to you? <laughs> No, there's no, no way. No, and I and again, I think it's, I think it's the name. I think it's Woody Allen. It's the Woody Allen of it all. Um, you know, me personally, I've only seen three of Allen's films now. With Midnight in Paris, I've also seen Match Point, and I've seen Vicky Cristina Barcelona. <laughs> Obviously, like Vicky Cristina Barcelona is my favorite of, of these three. Um. But even then, I wouldn't say direction. <laughs> um, to me, it's always his writing that I think is way more solid than his direction. Um, he's a capable director, not taking anything away from that. But it's the stories itself that really are the highlight of, of a lot of, of at least the ones that I've seen. Maybe when I see, you know, Hannah and her sisters or Annie Hall, I'll be like, okay, I see the direction there. Um, but for me, it's nothing about the direction, particularly in this film, that is so standout that I could say top five of the year. Unless, again, it was just an incredibly weak year. <laughs> yeah, and feeding into that conversation, best picture, the artist, the descendants, extremely loud and incredibly close, the help, Hugo, Midnight in Paris, Moneyball, Tree of Life, and War Horse. I mean, there are a lot of talented mm-hmm. people represented here. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of talented movies. You know, in this lineup, we've got Martin Scorsese and Terrence Malick and Steven Spielberg, and you got Aaron Sorkin as a writer. Like, there are a lot of definitely talented individuals, but seemingly all of them missed this year. Midnight in Paris did not win. The artist did, of course. What um, of this lineup, what do you think your pick would have been if you had a vote? Oh, um, I, you know what? I probably would have gone with Hugo. Um, that probably would have been my number one uh, here. Um, Follow very closely by, by Moneyball. Because um, I think Moneyball is definitely one of those films that has withstood the test of time i would say out of this lineup those are the two that 
I feel has grown in appreciation since since their year of release. Yeah, I think Moneyball is a great movie. I also don't think it's what Best Picture traditionally looks for with cultural significance, with teaching something about the past, with bringing a new idea to the table. Moneyball is a phenomenal movie. I don't think this achieves that. I would have gone with uh, The Descendants or The Help. Um, Those would have been my two picks. But nonetheless, Midnight in Paris was here, undoubtedly and undeservedly. Um, All right. One interesting thing that I wanted to bring out here in this conversation is about William Faulkner and the William Faulkner estate filed a lawsuit against Sony pictures for the dialogue inside the film. Quote, the past is not dead. Actually, it's not even past. Um, Unquote. This is a paraphrasing of an often quoted line from Faulkner's 1950 book Requiem for a nun, where in that movie, or excuse me, in that book, the quote is the past is never dead. It's not even the past, unquote. And basically Faulkner claims that the paraphrasing was an unlicensed use of the estate. He's directly credited with the dialogue when Gil claims to have met the writer at a dinner party. Basically, um, the response to that lawsuit was, quote, the idea that one person can control the use of those particular words seems ridiculous. Any kind of literary illusion is ordinary celebrated. This seems to fall in that tradition. Sony's response was that they cr- considered the action a frivolous lawsuit. Mm-hmm. A judge in Mississippi in 2013 dismissed the lawsuit altogether. So just an interesting kind of piece as we talk about that literally one line in this movie led to a lawsuit that did not go anywhere. But still, I think that's just an interesting little uh, little piece there, little nugget in there. Um, one other thing that was worth noting that I thought was pretty funny as I was doing some research here. So Zelda Fitzgerald played by Allison Pill. Mm-hmm. When she first meets Gil, she says, quote, you have a glazed look in your eye, stunned, stupefied, mm-hmm. anesthetized, lobotomized. Right. Um, this was during the 1920s and lobotomies were not introduced until 1935. <laughs> so maybe she was part mm-hmm. of the past as well with time travelers. Nice. That's two, interesting. Two little nuggets there that I thought were worth mentioning. Phoenix, let's uh let's go ahead and put a bow on this whole discussion. Anything else that you wanted to talk about when it comes to Midnight in Paris? Like I said, the 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 aesthetic of the movie is is to me the strongest part of it. And it's it's why I could see myself revisiting it. It does put me in a I wouldn't say cheerful, but I guess it's like it it, it gives me a good feeling, right? It's a movie that gives me a good feeling. And and I appreciate that about it. I love, you know, when I sat down to watch this and and just being immersed in it all because of because of the sights and sounds, because of the vibe of it. Obviously, like the movie itself is weak in a lot of lot of areas. Uh, but it's that it's that aesthetic that 
that draws me every time. So for me, that's good enough to 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 pass this off. So I'm going with a very timid three stars on this one. The vibes are great. And I think the production is definitely something to appreciate. The cast, the ensemble is one that you can always turn this on and at least have a good time. Mm -hmm. This is a movie that you can watch and have a fine time with it. But if you try to actually piece things together story-wise, meaning-wise, which is what you and I do when we watch movies, what's the point of this whole thing? It raises a lot of questions. For me, I'm going to go with the three stars as well. I think it's a good movie. But Woody Allen, man, way too thin on where this could have been. The ideas are there. You had everything in place. It just wasn't specified enough. We didn't dive deeper into anything. And ultimately, it felt too thin and it felt too shallow for what you were trying to say. And that's a shame because I feel like it could have been done a lot better. So it's a three stars from me. It's a three stars from you. And ultimately, I'm a little disappointed because I wanted to love this. (laughs) I wanted to love it one and a half times around. All right. That was our review of Midnight in Paris. However you listen to this, please go ahead and check out our other episodes if you've listened thus far. Chances are you at least liked a little bit of what you heard. Hopefully you're not sick of us yet. And if you could, please go back, check out our other episodes. Like I mentioned, this is episode 33. Phoenix and I have been on a great run. We've done a ton of movies lately. We just did American Psycho, Artificial Intelligence, Moonlight, Fences. But go back even further. We've done Point Break, Raging Bull, Soul, like I already talked about. There's some other really great ones in there as well. Uh, Phoenix, tell everyone about Film Code. Yes, my other podcast that I host with friends Zach and Brandon uh, is the Film Code Pod. We are nearing the end of our third season, uh, which is crazy to me. Uh, Four seasons is going to be even wilder, hopefully. Um, you guys can find me on Twitter at I'm H-O Reviews one That's the number one. And you can find Film Code on Twitter and Instagram at Film Code Pod. Give us a listen. Thank you. Yep. Definitely check those guys out. They do great work. Um, also, give us a follow over on TikTok at End Credits Pod. I'm working on posting some more content over there so you can hear more movie, TV, and general news on your phone. So please go ahead, give us a follow at End Credits Podcast on TikTok. We would really, really appreciate it. Want to shout out our executive producer, Jack Feifner, for everything he does, uploading our episodes, editing them so they could be listened to you right now. So thank you, Jack, and thanks for all that you do. Uh, From Jack, from Phoenix, from myself, Nathan, This has been the End Credits Podcast. Thank you so much for being here and we'll see you next time.